And who he is, deep down, is fundamentally opposed to God's nature. He simply is not godly. And that makes him unrighteous. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Whereas one would scarcely die for a righteous person, the implication here is that these people, the ones that Paul's writing to here, they don't meet that criteria. They aren't a righteous person that one may possibly die for. Again, we we still don't get a positive definition of what sin is. We don't get to read and say sin is blank. But instead, we get a negation. Sin is not righteous. It's unrighteous. Whatever right is, sin is not that. This concept in Scripture is most often applied to God as an example of his faithfulness, his righteousness, his steadfast nature in doing what is right. That's what his righteousness is. Sin simply doesn't do what's right. It's not faithful. It's not true. And it's not good. The rest of verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Still, the assumption is that though maybe someone might die for a good person, Paul's readers in Romans, they're not a good person. They're not good people. They don't qualify for one that someone may possibly die for. They're not good. Whatever is good, they are not that. That brings us to a point here worth making, which relates to our definition of sin from earlier. God is good. Fundamentally, holy and truly, he is good and he does good. More than that, he created the idea of goodness. You wouldn't know what good is if it weren't for God. Good wouldn't exist if it weren't for God. The very idea and concept of goodness is the overflow of who God is. Because of who God is, that is what good is. When you see something that is good, you are seeing something that's like God. So now, when we rightly define that which is good, we've identified something that lines up with who God actually is. He is the definition. He is the example. He is the template of everything that's good. To be good is to be like God. And for many of us, when we think about goodness, we tend to think about whether we are good people or not. We tend to think about that backwards. We think goodness is just the absence of badness. That as long as I don't do really bad things, that makes me good. And that's not true. Good is a thing. Good exists. Good is like God. Anytime you do something that isn't like God, that's bad. Goodness is what exists. And we think that goodness, rather than just being the absence of badness, we think that goodness is some standard out here that we have to figure out. We have have God, and then we have whatever is good. And we've got to figure out whatever is good. And then even sometimes we think that once we figure that out, we should apply that to God and say, well, is God actually good? Does he meet my standard of goodness? Does he do things that I think a good God would do? We've got that backwards. That may be much better than what I would do. It's not quite what you want from the guy whose only job is to hit the ball. His only job is to get on base. His only job is to drive in runs. And he wasn't doing it. But then Matt Goodhart did something. He went to the eye doctor. He went and got an eye exam. They gave him a new prescription. They gave him new contacts. 
And starting from the next day after he went to the eye doctor, he went on a tear where he was hitting 480, literally double what he was hitting before, twice as good as he was doing before. He was one of the best hitters that the team had had that entire season. He was one of the best players in all of the SEC for that entire season. He was getting a hit every other time he stepped up to the plate. 50% of the time, he was getting on base. But when you think about it, that makes sense, right? If you are really confused when you step up to the plate, what is that white blurry thing coming at me? Why did that big other blurry thing throw that white blurry thing at me? You're not going to do a very good job. But when you're able to see, wait, that's a fastball. That isn't a blurry monster. That's a pitcher who's throwing the ball to me. That's where it is. I can hit that. Seeing things clearly made all the difference for Matt Goodhart. And sometimes it can make all the difference for anyone. In our text today, Christ helps us begin to see him clearly. He heals a blind man. He's showing us his power to help us see and how that often looks. Peter finally sees him clearly enough to acknowledge who he is, to say he is the Christ. That's who he is. And he helps his disciples see exactly what is coming for him and for them because of who he is, what the life of discipleship is going to look like for them. So from our text today, we're going to see three reasons Christ reveals himself, three reasons Christ helps us see who he is more clearly. First of all, Christ reveals himself in our text so that we will see his impact. That's why he shows us who he is. So we'll see his impact personally. Look at the first two verses. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? When Christ performs this miracle, it's one of the most intimate encounters we get in all of the Gospels. Most of his miracles are performed in front of a large crowd. Most of the time, he says something and then something happens. They're out in the open. Oftentimes, the point of the miracle is to show the crowd who he is. But that's not what he does here. This miracle, for the most part, is between Jesus and the man. Maybe his disciples were there to see. It's just Jesus, just the man. Maybe just his disciples. The man's blind, so Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him where he needs to go. He takes him out of the crowd, out of the village, away from all the people. He spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on them. The man can't see what's about to happen. Jesus has to reveal that to him through the the touch, the feel of the the spit and the hands. Just as uh, a few chapters ago in Mark, we were reading when he unstopped the man's ears by spitting before he did so. He's showing the blind man that just as he is giving life, that's where the spit comes from. He's connecting that, that water from his body, that he's giving life to the man by opening his eyes. He's showing him that which he cannot see. He's doing all of these things in such a personal way to where the blind man would understand what's happening. He's the point of the miracle. He's the the purpose of what's going on. Christ is showing him his impact personally in a way that only he would have understood. Because the miracle wasn't about the crowd, it was about the man. Jesus didn't heal him in the same way that he would heal anyone else. Everything about the encounter was personal and specific to this person. He was showing the man who he was in a way that was particular to him. And when you come to Christ, that's always how it feels, isn't it? You hear testimonies over and over. Even country songs take it. 
They say, it felt like the preacher was speaking to me that day. It felt like that sermon was talking to me and about me. And that's when Christ opened my eyes. Now, we might differ in some of our testimonies to where whether that happened or not. But one day, for all of us, Christ reveals himself to you. He does it personally. He shows you who he is. And that's always going to be different from the way he shows someone else who he is. We use the same word, the same text, the same gospel, but it hits you differently. You understand it differently. One day when the preacher is preaching the same gospel that he preaches every week, the same Jesus he preaches every week. For those of us who are Christians, one week it hit us right between the eyes. And we saw, we understood. He revealed who he was to us in a way that he had not done before and in a way that was specific and particular to you. God spoke to you through the words of that gospel message. Though he's the God of all creation, he still speaks and moves personally in the lives of all of his people. So we see his impact personally, but we can also see it progressively. Look at the next few verses. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. When he's revealed himself to you personally, he continues to reveal himself to you progressively. Yes, he he performed a miracle. He gave the man his sight. He opened his eyes. But he didn't do it all at once this time. He didn't snap his fingers. He didn't just say a word and have the, mind, have the man have all of his sight restored. He could have done so, right? Jesus wasn't lacking in power on this day. It wasn't a Monday and he hadn't had his coffee yet. He didn't have like a bad Wi-Fi connection to where he didn't have access to the power to be able to perform this miracle. He could have healed him instantly, but he didn't. He healed him progressively. He had a little bit of sight, enough to see trees walking around. And then he showed him fully who he was. He showed him fully what was happening, that they were people, not trees. He revealed himself slowly to show that that's how he often works. He doesn't always give you everything all at once. He gives you a little bit, just enough that you can see the next step. And then he keeps going and reveals a little bit more and a little bit more. Progressively, he shows who he is. Rarely does someone come to faith in an instant. Typically, for most of us, it's a slow and long process. I I did the math not that long ago and used it in a sermon. I had heard the gospel thousands of times before I responded to it. I didn't come to faith all at once. I didn't hear who Jesus was one time and decide to repent for my sins and turn to him in faith. That's not what happened. God slowly chipped away at my heart until eventually he took that stone heart and made it flesh. He showed me who he was. And then I responded with faith after he had given me that gift. Typically, when someone comes to faith, it's a very slow process with a million tiny little breakthroughs before your sight is finally restored, before you can finally see Christ clearly as he is. And that fact should encourage us in our evangelism. That fact should encourage us when we share our faith with someone else. When you show someone else who Jesus is, you tell them who he is and what he's done, and they don't respond, that shouldn't cause us to pause one second. 
because that might have been time three million, and it might take time three million and one before they finally respond. We keep going. It should encourage us to know that Christ reveals himself progressively, but his progressive revelation of himself isn't only true for unbelievers who are coming to faith. It's also true for us Christians, right? We grow progressively in sanctification. We grow progressively in who we understand Christ to be. Just because you become a believer doesn't mean that you know everything or really anything about what it looks like to be a Christian, about what the Christian life is meant to be. The discipleship process, just like the process in which you came to faith, is usually a very slow one. It's a long obedience in the same direction. You're allowing the Spirit to progressively sanctify you, progressively open your eyes so that you will become more like Christ with each and every passing day. It's fits and starts. It's ups and downs. It is a progressive sanctification, but it's rarely linear. It usually looks a lot more like a roller coaster. But it still progresses. It still moves forward. It still goes. He still does reveal himself. So if we will remember to look at our lives and look at our progress in the Christian life on a larger trajectory, if we won't necessarily look at ourselves today versus yesterday and say, man, I don't know if I did any better today. I think today might have been worse than yesterday. I think I failed to worship him today better than I did yesterday. That can weigh you down. But if you look at your life over the course of decades, If you look at your life over the course of years, months, weeks, keep zooming out. Decades. Generations. From the day that you became a Christian to now. That's where you'll see the progress. As long as you keep going. As long as you keep progressing. As long as you keep praying and moving and going. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. It's not your power which saved you in the beginning, and it's not your power which causes you to progress even now. He's the one who does it. He has the power to do so. That's why when I was giving advice on how to accomplish our reading plan as a church, which we started in January, and I haven't taken a poll, but I would guess there have been a few people who have dropped off. We started in January to read the Bible as a church. And I'm sure over time, a few people fell behind and stuff got busy, and you get to numbers, and it's literally just numbers. It's just a list of names and numbers. And you get to the point where you say, oh, this is hard. I can't do this. And then you've fallen so far behind, you look at it, and you say, I don't know how I'm going to catch up. What am I going to do? I'll just wait till January. I'll start over, clean slate, January 1st, and then next year I'll do it. I'll nail it. My advice to you was not catch up. Try harder. It was start today. Pick it up today. Go wherever it is today and just keep going. If you miss a day, try to get, kept, try to get caught up. If you miss two days, skip them. Start over. Keep going. Because the goal here isn't for you to get to 100% obedience. It's not for you to get to 100% perfect so that you have all the red X's on the calendar. For you to have the, the perfect graph at the end. You say the whole pie chart is done. I read the entire reading plan. The goal is that whenever you take that practice and you're constantly reading your Bible, over the course of decades, you will have read the Bible so many times. But only if you actually read it. 
It doesn't matter that you only hit 90% that year or 80% that year or maybe 30% that year. It matters that you kept going. And over the course of your life, you kept reading. He's progressively showing you who he is through that. That's why we do what we do. That's why the Christian life doesn't look like us striving to be perfect, failing, and then just blowing the whole thing off. It looks like us striving to run after Christ, failing, repenting, confessing, and saying, you've already dealt with that sin, so I'm going to keep going. We throw off the things that hinder and we move forward because Christ reveals himself progressively to us. He shows us who he is over the course of time, over and over, slowly, so that when you arrive at the end of your life and you die, you will be made perfect in him. That's the goal. Keep going. Keep trusting that he's going to do that. We have to give grace to ourselves by remembering what Christ has accomplished for us and to see the progressive work that he's doing in us. And that same grace, by the way, has to be extended to new Christians as well. That same grace that you need to progress and grow in maturity in the Christian life needs to go toward the people who are new in the faith as well. You didn't snap your fingers and arrive at your current level of holiness, at your current progressively sanctified version of you. That's not what happened. It took a long time. It took a lot of prayer, a lot of reading, a lot of understanding, a lot of discipleship to get to where you are now. So grant them that same grace that you needed to get there. If God is gracious to us, if he grants the prayers that we have been praying, that he will use us as a church to reach people in Conway for his name and for his glory, we are going to see a lot of new Christians around here one of these days. And those new Christians are going to be stumbling around like baby giraffes trying to live the Christian life. And we've got to be okay when that happens. We've got to know on that day, Yeah, they're stumbling now, but they'll be running later. That's what's going to happen. God is going to progressively sanctify them just as he progressively sanctified you. When Christ reveals himself, he does so, so we will see his impact personally and progressively. But he also reveals himself, so we will see him as he is. That's the second reason from our text that Christ reveals himself to his people. So we will see him as he is. Look at the next section. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, Christ reveals himself so we will see him as he is, as opposed to how the world sees him. The true picture of Christ here is opposed to how the world was seeing him in this text. He says, who do they say that I am? It's a leading question. He knows he's going to follow it up with the question as to who the disciples think he is, but he's asking to draw out the distinctions, the differences between the two groups, rather than just giving us the disciples' affirmation of his title. Because you see the answers there? Who do the... Who does the world see him to be? They told him, John the Baptist. They say, no, you're like that crazy guy who was in the wilderness. He had a small but devoted following, and he was eventually killed. He was beheaded by the state because of his radical teachings. That's who you are. 
But even John himself said that he was pointing to someone who was supposed to come after him. That's the world. That's they saying that Christ is cool, but he's not ultimate. He's not the the fullness of what's supposed to come. He's not the final climax. He's just another one waiting for the real deal to show up. That's similar to us in the modern impression that a lot of people have that Christ isn't God in the flesh. He isn't actually God. He's just a good teacher. He's just a really moral guy who said some really cool things. He doesn't own morality for all people. He doesn't determine what, that which is true. But he has some things to teach some people who are possibly into whatever he has to say. That's what a lot of people view him to be. They might also view him the, the, the way they did that he is Elijah. He's another figure who's totally separate from the rest of those who had come before or after him. He was bold, powerful, and represented the high watermark for the prophets of God. But ultimately, Elijah's ministry ended in failure. The nation of Israel kept spiraling. They didn't listen to him. They didn't repent. They didn't turn. The book of Kings kept going. It had no real or lasting bearing on the nation of Israel outside of himself. It would be like the world saying that Christ is so cool that he might even be the best thing that's come along. He might be the the best that we could imagine. He might be the next figure who's idolized by the people of Israel, but he isn't ultimately worthy of their worship. It's similar to us believers when we treat Christ as if he's great, that he may even be the best thing to come along, that he might be the best thing for our lives. So, yeah, we'll we'll give him some honor. We'll show up occasionally on Sunday morning. We'll pray every once in a while. We'll maybe give every once in a while. We'll maybe show up every once in a while. But... That's it. That, that's, as, that's as good as it goes. That's as much as it gets. It has no real effect on us. It's a lukewarm Christianity. It's claiming to love Christ while in reality not seeing him as he is, as the fullness of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who's someone who's worthy of every ounce of love and devotion that we have to offer, of our very lives. That's to see him as Elijah. The world might also see him as one of the prophets. It's just one of them, one of those guys. He's not even noteworthy. Just one more in a long line of people whose names we don't remember. That's saying that Christ is utterly unimportant. What he says is going to be forgotten. What he does won't matter. Yeah, he, he's having his moment here now in this place, his 15 minutes of fame. But ask me again tomorrow who he is and see if I remember It's similar to the world saying, yeah, he may have been a big deal back then. 2,000 years ago, I'm sure he said some things that people needed to hear. But this is a different time. This is a different place. He doesn't matter anymore. He has no relevance today. Forget about him because everybody else already has. That's how the world might see him. But we aren't called to see him as the world sees him. We're called to see him as he truly is, which we can see in Peter's answer. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He's revealing himself to us in his word, us his people, so that we might see him as he actually is, not as the world sees him. 
He's knowing that the world's answers are going to be insufficient, so he turns to his disciples, the people who know him best, the people who are following him the most closely, the people who are spending their lives following him and his teachings, and he says, okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, not one to be bashful, speaks up immediately, clearly, simply as possibly he could say, he says, you are the Christ. He nails it. He spoke immediately. He didn't confer with everybody else to make sure that they were all on the same page. Okay, one for Christ. Okay, what do you think? We've got four for Christ now. Bartholomew, what are you? No, he said, nope, you're the Christ. He spoke for the whole group. He spoke up immediately and clearly. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the teaching. He had known the man. And that led him to the only possible conclusion, which no one had yet said from the disciples. You're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. He's giving him the Messianic title. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's who he is. It's, it's a title. He's the Messiah. He isn't just another prophet. He isn't just any kind of do-over that John didn't quite get the job done. We'll see what Jesus does. He's the one the prophets foresaw, the one they all pointed toward. He's the fulfillment of all the promises that have been given to God's people. He's the point of all of creation. When God made reality, he did so in order that Jesus would come down on this planet and be Jesus the Christ. And Peter saw it. That truth that Peter acknowledged was eventually going to get him killed. So that's why he said, don't tell anyone. It's too early. You tell people now, they'll kill me too early. He told the disciples not to tell anyone who he was or else they would kill him before he had accomplished all the work that he came to do. Because he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He affirms Peter's title and then expounds on it. He keeps going, explaining who he is. Calling himself the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. When he's referring to himself, he most often says, the Son of Man. He calls himself this most often, and no one ever speaks that title to him. He just affirms it, says, this is who I am, over and over. He gives himself that title because he's drawing from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which should be on the screen behind me. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Peter got the ball rolling. He said, you're the Christ. And Jesus took that and ran with it and said, I am the son of man. This is me, the one who's been given all kingdom, all power, all glory. It's an everlasting dominion that will not go away. He's telling them more about this figure of the son of man that they would have heard before. They would have heard that text from Daniel. That he's connecting it to who he is and what he's come to do. And what he has come to do is to suffer and die. That's what he explains to them in verse 31. That he is the suffering servant. He had to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and to eventually be resurrected in order to perform his messianic duties. He had to do these things that were foretold in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. Because if he didn't do these things, he would have been who the world thought he was. Not who the Christ is. But he is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. 
He did come to suffer and die on behalf of his people. He's not just another John the Baptist. He's not just another Elijah. He's not just another in a long line of prophets who came and went. He's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is the Son of Man who came to serve his people by suffering in their place. That's who he is. And he is that whether we like it or not. Let's keep going in the next two verses. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter heard what Jesus had said he had come to do, and he had a problem with it. He said, No, I'm following you. I don't want you to suffer and die. So he rebuked Jesus. Classic Peter. He was, wasn't bashful, so he spoke up and said, you're the Christ. He nailed it. He had like three words, and he spoke them perfectly. And then immediately, he turns around and says, okay, now that I know what I'm talking about, let me teach you a few things, Jesus. Let me show you what you should be thinking. He takes Jesus aside and decides to teach him some things about the power of positive thinking. He says, Jesus, come here for a second. He calls him over so Jesus won't be embarrassed in front of the other disciples. He says, listen, buddy, that doesn't have to be true. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You don't have to suffer and die. Why are you being so negative? You could do all those things you're supposed to do and not have to end in that way. Not have to go through what you say you have to go through. Not have to deal with this whole dying and suffering thing. You can get past that if you'll just put your mind to it. Chin up, Jesus. You don't have to deal with that. And Jesus' response is to turn to, to Peter and rebuke him. He calls him Satan. You know why he does that? Because it's the same offer that Jesus rejected in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he said, I'll give you the world right now. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. I can give you everything right this second. And Jesus rebukes him because that's not what he came to do. He came to suffer and die. So when Peter gives him the same offer, you can get everything you came to get. You can do everything you came to do. Just ditch the suffering asterisk. Jesus says, no, that's not an asterisk. That's the point. That's what I came to do. That's who I am. I don't suffer and die. I am not the Messiah. He says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world without that ugly cross thing. If you'll just forget about this. But Jesus' rebuke of Peter admonishes him to set his mind on the things of God. He's literally telling him to get back on the right side, to understand things clearly. He's telling Peter to see who Christ is even more clearly because without the suffering and the cross, he's not the Messiah. The Messiah has to do these things. The anointed one, the Son of Man, has to do these things. So if he is that, he has to do these things. You don't get the forgiveness. You don't get the the, the resurrection. You don't get the power. You don't get the Messiahship unless you get the suffering. When we see Christ as actually being the Christ, it often has certain implications that we may not like. But when we have a problem with the implications of Christ's Christness, our responsibility is to get in line with him rather than to try to conform him to our understanding. Rather than trying to teach him a thing or two, we've got to teach ourselves a thing or two. We have to see him for who he is and understand what that means for us totally and clearly. 
And that's part of why he reveals himself to us, so that we'll see him as he is. Which brings us to the third reason Christ reveals himself in our text today. So that we'll see what we're getting into. So that we'll understand the life of discipleship that he's called us to. We can see what it means to be a disciple. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's showing what it looks like to be a disciple of his. He doesn't allow the question to linger in the disciples' minds of whether they can get the Messiah without getting the suffering. He spells out exactly what it means to be his disciple. He lets them know exactly what they're getting into. He said, it looks like coming after me. It looks like following him to whatever end. We've seen his example, so now we follow in his steps. If Christ did it, you are now to do it. That applies to everything, all of his moral teaching, all of his compassion, all of his understanding. Everything but his Messiah-like works. You don't die on the cross for your sins because he did. You come after him like lemmings off a cliff if need be. The Christ suffered, so why would we think that our lives should look any different? The life of a disciple looks like denying yourself. It's going to entail depriving yourself of some things that you desperately want. Because what we want are the things everybody wants, right? We want an easy life. We want money. We want power. We want fame or personal glory, safety, comfort, control. But when you come to Christ, when you live the life of a disciple, you can have none of these things. You have to deny them from yourself. Because the life of a disciple is a life of killing your flesh. That's what it looks like. You take up your cross. Just as Christ died, so your flesh must die. Just as he died in the flesh for your sins, so your flesh must die with your sin. You have to put to death what is earthly in you that you may live. The only way to have life in Christ is by killing whatever in you isn't of him. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not a battle that's quickly won. It's a bloody tooth-and-nail struggle every second of every day for the rest of your life. In fact, if you think you've won that battle already, that reveals that you've most certainly already lost. You've attempted to tame your sin. You've allowed yourself to be enslaved by it. You have to kill your flesh. Make war against the sin in you. John Owen, the famous Puritan preacher, said, Kill your sin or it will be killing you. It's a battle. Somebody's got to die. So kill the sin or it will be killing you. The life of a disciple looks like killing your flesh, and it looks like also being obedient. So you follow him. You're obedient to do what he said when he has said it, knowing that he loves you and cares for you and withholds nothing from you that's good. Simple obedience is all that he asks of you. Being obedient means that whatever else is demanded of you, your answer will always be yes. Yes, Lord. That's the response of a disciple every time they come up against it. Yes, Lord, your will, your, will, your will be done. Yes, Lord, no matter the cost. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you may lead. The disciple's life is a life of long obedience in the same direction, of long killing sin in the same direction. You don't have to be perfect because Christ was perfect for you. You just keep going. You keep trusting that the one who saved you, not by your own power, is going to progressively sanctify you, not by your own power. 
You keep saying yes to him, and you see where that takes you. He shows what it looks like to be a disciple, but he also shows what it looks like to not be a disciple. The consequences of not being a disciple. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You can see here the consequences of not being a disciple. Lest we begin to think that we have some other conceivable alternative to what Christ has asked of us, he clearly lays out the situation so that we can't ever claim we didn't know the stakes. He says, your only chance at life is to lose it for my sake and the gospels. So you've got to give it up. You've got to kill yourself. You've got to give up the, the flesh that's on you, put it on the cross just like he was. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And that choice, lose yourself and find life, try to keep yourself and lose everything. That choice is the only choice and makes complete sense when we rightly understand it. Gaining everything we want but losing our own souls does us no good. Temporary happiness can never assuage eternal damnation. Not persevering, not following through during persecution, that reveals that you are not and never were a disciple of Christ. For us to be ashamed of our Lord only reveals that he isn't actually our Lord. We tend to view him the way the world does. The only way to profit is to truly be a disciple of Christ. So that's how we avoid the shame of the Son of Man here in these verses. And the reward on the other side for that. Once we see Christ clearly, once we see who he is, once we see what, he's, what we're getting into, what the life of a disciple looks like, is that we get to see the kingdom of God. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If we persevere, if we see him clearly, if we see what it means to be a disciple, to see the consequences of not following him, and then we persevere to the end, our reward is to never taste death. What a glorious gift to his people to remove the effects of the fall to such an extent that stale death never even enters your mouth, much less reaching your lungs. That's what we're getting into. As hard as the Christian life may be, as hard as it may be to kill your sin, you have a God with you who has already killed your sin for you. You have a God with you who is giving you the power to see his kingdom come in power, who is taking away the taste of death from you actively and clearly even now. He's revealing himself so we can see his impact, so we can see him as he truly is and see what we're getting into. And when we see these things clearly, we're able to actually understand how good he's been to us. The blind man was healed. The disciples saw the Messiah that they had been waiting for. The one who perseveres will not taste death until they see his kingdom coming with all its glory and all its power. It may not profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, but it certainly profits a man to lose his life and gain the eternal kingdom. Coming after Christ denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Is that hard? Yes, absolutely. 
I won't ever say it's easy. But in light of the reward for you on the other side, which has been earned on your behalf by one who loves you and gave himself for you in your place, what a small price to pay. What a great thing he's called us to. When we see things clearly, when we see Christ clearly, what wouldn't we do in response to that gospel gift? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Help us to see you more clearly, to understand you fully, to know that you came, you suffered, you died for your people, to save us from that same suffering and that same death. And in response to what you've done for us, there's nothing that isn't worth that. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, it's hard, so help us. But help us see that it's worth it. Help us know that you are worth it. And when we persevere to the end, let us see your kingdom coming in power. For at that moment, wherever we went through, however hard it was, that won't matter anymore. So give us the strength to wait for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.